Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is drummer Clifford Kaufman. Based out of Nashville, Clifford is a respected educator who founded the Sound and Rhythm Drumming School back in 2000. Early on in his career, he received a professional development grant to study music in West Africa. He continues to inspire others through his extensive knowledge and experience. Over 15 years ago, Clifford studied with renowned jazz musician Rock Alam Bob Moses, who continues to be a friend and mentor to him. Currently, Clifford is working on producing a documentary project to help tell the story of Rock Alam Bob Moses, introducing the teachings and philosophies of this unique creative artist. We talk about his vision and goals for this new project, and why it's essential to help bring this story to a wider audience to help maintain Ra Kalam Bob Moses' legacy. Let's get started. Clifford, I first became aware of you hearing you speak and tell your story on another podcast, which I found particularly inspiring. And one of the things that I really found interesting about your journey is you kind of started out, you know, as a drummer, like many of us, spending some time learning, playing on the drums, taking some lessons. But then at some point, you kind of expanded into the world of hand percussion and you've gone into a different direction and now incorporated those different elements, both as a player and a teacher. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you got started and maybe how you kind of combined these two worlds into what you're currently doing now. Sure. Uh, it started in college. So I started playing drum set when I was you know, 12 or 13, as so many of us start around that time. And then in college, I, um, I found myself in a jam band. Um, I went to school in North Carolina, a school called Wake Forest. And the jam band had two guitars, keyboard, bass, fretless bass, and uh, drum set. I was playing drum set, and then two different percussionists would play with us. And we would do a lot of improvisation. We'd play songs like, you know, Grateful Dead, that sort of, you know, that sort of songs, original songs as well. When we would start some songs, so, so we started playing. I, I joined this band. It was just a loose kind of collective kind of, and we immediately got a gig playing for the college radio station. And yeah, I had not gigged very much, but we did that. And then we got a gig at the local club Ziggy's which would have you know bands like Dave Matthews band play at that time and you know some bigger much bigger bands so we were kind of thrown into it and we would start sometimes um we start these shows with all drums or all percussion not necessarily drums and um and we kind of you know and then maybe one person would go from percussion to guitar and you know so that these jams would kind of develop organically like that so there's kind of there was a percussive mindset to the group and then around that time the percussionists they discovered a class city over from us. It, this was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in Greensboro. It's about a 30-minute drive. There were some African drumming classes. There was a drummer who lived there named Mohamed DaCosta from Guinea, I'm pretty sure. He was sort of leading, facilitating these classes. It wasn't exactly a class, from what I remember. It seemed more like a jam. There wasn't a lot. But I remember the room was packed, and there were um, 
people playing djembes and also playing the dunus, the bass drums with a bell on top mm-hmm. and dick on the side, you know, two, two headed drum playing on the side um, or playing on the, the head. Um, and what intrigued me about that, I didn't quite hear, or I didn't quite notice the, or understand the, the polyrhythmic element or the melody, but they were playing with their left hand on the bell and their right hand on the drum. Kind of like, you know, we usually, if we're right-handed, we'd play with our right hand on yes. the high ride cymbal. And so I thought this would be really good as a drum set player to be using my left more. So that was my initial introduction. I just went to one of those, this is, you know, in North Carolina. But while I was in college, uh, my brother lived in New Orleans. And for whatever reason, I would visit a lot. I had got the idea that I was going to buy a djembe when I was in New Orleans. And, and the reason for that, I think, you know, I think, I saw other people at djembe's and also I, um, I just like the idea of having something that you can just carry and easily transport. You don't have to set it up or anything. And, and it basically has, you know, a low, a middle and a high sound. I mean, it has many more sounds, but, but that was my understanding. And so I, I found a djembe, this, this tourist market right in the French quarter. There were all these little djembe's, little tourist djembe's. Um, and underneath all these little tourist gym base was this big beautiful gym bay and i said i want that one and the woman said oh that one's not for sale and i bartered with her and finally got it and so hey that was my first gym bay um but i didn't really start learning until i moved out west to, to portland oregon but yeah that's so that was kind of the initial interest was just something that was portable and that's a long answer for that but uh, but portable you know something that you can just bring with you pretty easily Well, and one of the things that I think is interesting about your story as well is that as a drummer, many people tend to gravitate towards um, hand percussion like djembe's or cajones or things along that lines because they're told we're doing an acoustic gig and you can't bring a full drum set. And so they kind of end up having to adapt. And many people in those situations just treat it like a drum set and just kind of take that approach, which you can do. And that might have been your initial interest in this, but it's something that you took a lot further and you got really interested in the true rhythmic aspect and the techniques beyond these. And at some point, you actually went over to Africa and studied this in a much more serious manner so that you were really getting into the root and the true understanding of this. And can you talk a little bit about that experience and what drove you to do that? Sure. Uh, When I moved to Portland, Oregon in the fall, winter of 98, I was looking for work and I was, you know, I was just kind of piecing together jobs and waiting tables and working at an arts center. And I don't remember the time exactly, but I was looking for a job and I went into this place, Artichoke Music on Hawthorne Boulevard. And they were a beautiful music store with stringed instruments. And they were basically, they basically they said, well, uh, Master Drummer just opened up a shop down the street. Uh, maybe he's hiring. Maybe check that out. And so I went there to this shop, Anansi Beat. It's still there on Belmont Street in Portland. Um, and the owner is Niardi Alote, who is from Ghana. And he had this shop where he'd import drums and clothes and other instruments. And he had CDs of his own as well as maybe others. But I bought one of his CDs. And when I listened to it, I'd never heard anything like that before. I'd never really heard, I guess, really ever heard African music. That's not fully true because I had heard it, but I'd never heard it exactly like this on a recording. Just how melodic it could be. I was really blown away by that. And I ended up taking, you know, he wasn't hiring, but I ended up taking 
classes with him and this community formed and we would practice together and get into arguments about how things were supposed to go. And, and, and then he asked me and some of the other students to play for his dance classes that he, he taught dance as well. And, you know, I mean, I was so green. I mean, I would, you know, I would often be playing the bell and you might be playing something like co, 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 e, co, co. And I would be like swimming or like he would say sometimes you're going to Seattle, which would be meaning you're like you're, you're speeding up. Like I, I just I didn't know how to hear how everything related. There was, there was a pretty sizable Ghanaian community in Portland. And I you know was meeting people and meeting his kids who came, you know, who had recently come over and me um, these kids and um, different people from Ghana and just learning the music and meeting people from there, some beautiful people that I just, I really wanted to experience the place. You know, I'd never been to Africa and, you know, and was really into it. You know, was was taking lessons with this, with Niardi and actually with another Ghanaian guy and, um, you know, also taking other lessons and that sort of thing and playing in bands, you know, different, all kinds of different bands, types of bands. I, I didn't really know how to get there. You know, I had some, one of, one of two of my friends who were in this, this practice group and, Lessons. They they went for a long trip and kind of toured lots of parts of West Africa, and so I really wanted to do that. Didn't know how to get there. This is many years after starting starting to learn. Probably like four or five, six years after moving there, my mom's college roommate was traveling through. She was spending a year living in an RV with her dog, just traveling, and she came through Portland and you know wanted to see me, and um, she parked her RV in front of my house and. We went out to dinner and I was t- telling her about this dream of going to Ghana. And she basically told me that she was going to give me frequent flyer miles, that she had ones that she didn't need or more than she needed. And she gave me a ticket to Ghana, round trip ticket. That's a beautiful story. It was incredible. So I'm forever grateful. She, so she gifted that. And then other people kind of contributed to help me f- basically fund going to Ghana. Um, and I had contacts from these friends, some emails, some just names. So I tried to email who I, who I was able to, heard back to, from a few people and just went there. I just, I, you know, I, my plan was to stay with another teacher of mine, Chata Adi. But when I, when I arrived at Ghana, like I was going to stay with his family. He wasn't there, but his family. When I arrived, there was no one there to pick me up. And, and I call a number that I had and we couldn't communicate. There was no, they were speaking God. I assume it was God. And I was speaking English and they did not seem to speak English. And so I found that I didn't have a place to stay. And I was there for almost a month. And so that was my, my start to being there. <laughs> but anyway, so, so it was, it was being with meeting people from Ghana and learning the music that really interested me. I wanted to to go deeper. There's something about learning different styles that in order to truly understand and to first develop a further appreciation and a more capable ability, you have to kind of immerse yourself in the culture. Many times now you can watch a quick little YouTube video or there might be a book on a particular style, but unless you actually spend time to get to know the culture, absorb yourself in that, really truly understand how they do things, you can take different elements from things, but you never really truly adapt. And so I really admire your commitment to go through this process. But I am also sure it's not as easy to track down the teachers that you're looking for in Ghana as it would be, say, in Nashville, where you currently are. It's a different culture, a different approach, and it requires a lot of dedication and patience. And so what 
was your process for sort of tracking down some of the people that you wanted to study with and how did that all come about? So I had names and I had some emails and I, like I said, I'd heard from a few people, but I didn't, it wasn't as easy, you know, to track everybody down. So it was funny how things worked out. I ended up getting a taxi to a, just a random hotel that I had in a guidebook, just a kind of a mid-level hotel, not the cheapest hotel, not the most expensive hotel. And there was an, a breakfast on the roof, as they called it. So I get to the, the, the next morning to the, go to the roof for breakfast. And the breakfast was like Nescafe and white bread, like stale white <laughs> bread. I'm like, all right, not the best breakfast, but it had a view. And, um, and there was another, there was a couple up there. And I walk up to this couple to just, you know, as many of us do when we're traveling, it's nice to just talk to people and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They were obviously traveling too. And when I walk up to this woman, she immediately points at my shirt, which is a Mount Hood community college shirt that I had won or something. And, and I recognize her that she had worked at a coffee shop that I went into a number of times in Portland. And so <laughs> it's so funny to think of how, how that happened. But this was her second time in Ghana. She'd been studying bead making. And she was there with her brother and she became my tour guide for a few days. So I think my my second day there, maybe my first day, but we went to this area of Accra, kind of a sub, I guess you could call it a suburb on the coast called Osu, where one of my teachers, Niad Ja, was. He, I had emailed with him. He knew I was coming. So we just went down there looking for Niad Ja. And from my memory, you know, you know, this is a long time ago, this is 2005. Next thing I know, I'm asking a few people. Next thing I know, he's in the street saying, I've been looking for you. <laughs> and so um, so I started studying with him and started staying at his house. And that's, there's a lot to that. But he was one of my teachers there, Niaja and his, his musical partner, Martin. In that particular experience, what are some of the biggest takeaways you got from those lessons? I'd say the biggest takeaway was, musically, was kind of, these pockets of, you know, of time, how, you know, the bell might be doing that pattern that I did earlier, co, 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 like a clave. Yeah. But that we might be working on a phrase that starts co, 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 do, do, boom, do, 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 boom. You know, it might start right there, or it might be co, 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 e, co, co, kick the sheen, kick the sheen, So like they'd start in different places and we would drill those or, or, you know, repetition. Like in Guinea, they, I, I heard people call, the practice sessions, uh, rep repetition, you know, repetition, you know, just like as drummers, you know, we, we, or musicians, anyway, we, you know, to perfect something, we, we repeat it. So yeah, it was drilling that and getting more comfortable with, I guess, I, I think pocket seems to be a good term for it, uh, different pockets or different parts of the beat, you know, or the cycle. How has learning this particular style and really getting quite deep into the concept of hand percussion affected you as a drum set player yeah i think well it's like it's kind of like you have the elements you know of sound but instead of being one person you have many people mm -hmm. playing them polyrhythmic and it's melodic in that you know one one sound might be have a higher pitch another sound might be a little lower another one a little lower so you get that the melody and they you know their mel their their tones might come out in one place where another part comes out in another so i think just opening up hearing listening being able to hear something that's not what you're playing and being able to you know feel that and still have what you're playing so you know playing that sort of music being able to keep what you have going while something at first might sound very different or many many parts you know it could be it could be six different parts that are all different 
or it could be more even. So there's that. So so that that helped, and also just just feeling a groove, you know, just just playing something repetitively over and over again. But it's 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 not boring because you're here. There's so much to listen to, and there's a variety in the lead drum, and there's dance, and there's you know all these elements or singing. So I think it helped me be more musical and listen. But but when I started playing music from Guinea, I, I eventually traveled to Guinea um, with to study with my main teacher, Mamadi Keita. That's who I studied with the most for West African music. They, with the dununes, the bass drums, they will play three, typically, a small, medium, and large, which all have their own names. They'll play those three. There's a bell on top, and then you play on the side with the, with the stick. Um, so left hand is typically playing with a bell, and the right hand's playing on the on the skin. That is very drum set-like patterns. You know, dot, 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 You know, different patterns like that. Dot, 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 dot. You know, shuffles, mm-hmm. but but maybe it's you know, off beats, or maybe it's maybe it's going after the beat. And so, thinking about the beat being able to be anywhere, so I've definitely you know spent some time experimenting with taking the different parts and seeing if I can put them on the drum set. So is that that creates a, a coordination challenge, but also just the same thing, opening up the hearing and the being able to play something and have something very different happening and still you know, understanding it, feeling it. But, I, but I'd say the main thing is like, it's really helped with feeling, you know, time feeling. And I think one of the things that not everyone always understands is that when you look at Brazilian music or West African music or Afro-Cuban music, most of that is not drum set based. Most of that is is percussion ensemble based that has sort of been adapted to a drum set application. And I think the more you understand the significance of the individual pieces and how they all sort of connect together like a puzzle and why each piece is important and what each piece represents completely changes your perspective and your appreciation. And it also really helps to affect both, as you said, your coordination and the independence aspect of that, but your dynamics, because sometimes when you're just playing all the parts, you know, um, on a drum set, you tend to think in terms of everything has the same sort of dynamic. And you have to realize in these cultures and in this type of music, everything plays a different role and sometimes at different times. And so it really tends to help your musicality in terms of your approach for these. So I think it's quite fascinating to really get into a lot of these concepts. It sounds like you've done some of that. It sounds like you've played some in some ensembles. I've done a little bit of it. You know, at college, we had a Afro-Cuban ensemble. It was percussion ensemble. So everyone kind of learned some of the basic fundamentals. And then there was also a percussion ensemble that was more classical based. And I have a bit of a classical background. So that also changes your perspective. And what that did is it made me understand really why all of the stuff is important. If everyone learns a little bit about any different style, it's going to impact you as a player and you can take different elements and it makes you a better musician. I greatly admire and respect your commitment to your craft and your journey. Thank you. And one thing you that I've discovered, and I'm sure many others have discovered, is that not being born into it, mm-hmm. into the culture, that, that, that you'll never, there's things you'll never know. There's, you know, and you'll never, you'll never get to the bottom of, you'll never, you will, I mean, it's, it's true of music and in general, you'll never know it all. There's always another level, you know, you know, so there's a while where I probably was known as that guy who, you know, that Jewish white guy who does African music, but I tried to really find my own niche and like, how can I take this music I love and how can I, you know, get creative with it and 
do other things and that sort of thing. Through all of this, what brought you to Nashville? So I was in Portland for 17 years. I was ready for just a change. I felt like I had been there. I was ready to live somewhere else. And I moved there after college. And um, New Orleans, I'd been there a lot. My brother used to live there. I just, I'm in love with New Orleans. It's, you know, it's often described as the most Northern Caribbean city. It's just got the artistic beauty. And I was taking drum lessons online with Daniel Glass, which um, you might be familiar with him. I am. Yep. And he was, you know, sort of giving lessons, but also mentoring. He was kind of saying, you don't have to move anywhere. You can do whatever you want to do from where you are. But I really knew I wanted to move. There was something about Nashville. And he was like, yeah, that's the place for you. And so I started researching. It seemed like there wasn't anyone doing what I do, what I'd been doing for many years in Nashville. So it seemed like there was a potential to have a niche. And so started looking into moving in. My my wife at the time was just got her master's and was looking for work. And she was up for moving. We visited and checked it out. She applied for jobs in Portland, didn't get them, and applied for three jobs in Nashville and got one. So that's what moved us. And then also I have family closer. I grew up in North Carolina and um, I have my brothers in Atlanta. So being closer to family was a, you know, a nice thing as well. One of the reasons why we connected today is that you're currently involved in putting a documentary film project together on sort of the life influence and impact of legendary, although not as well known in some circles, the legendary Bob Moses or Ra Kalam Bob Moses, as he's known as now. Mm -hmm. You've known him for a number of years. I believe you were a student of his and he was a mentor to you and continues to be. How did that relationship originally develop and what led you to this project that you're currently working on now? Yeah, so... When I was living in Portland, I, I my favorite one of my favorite drummers in Portland, Reinhardt Meltz, great drummer. Played was I don't know if he still has played with Gino Vanelli and Pink Martini, and um, great drummer and cool guy. And I had taken some lessons with him, and I must have told him. So I have family. I lived in Boston when I was little, and my family roots are from Boston. I told him I was going to Boston, and I was taking some lessons. I was you know making the best of all the great teachers there, and he told me that the. The most amazing lesson he ever had was with this guy, Bob Moses, who I had no idea who that was. And I so I looked him up, found him. He, he found out that he taught at New England Conservatory and contacted them. And they sent me his email, got in touch with him. He said, sure, I'll, I'll give you a lesson. Come over to the house. So while I was in Boston, I went to his house in Quincy, suburb of Boston. We had, I had a lesson, which was the most unique lesson that I've ever had. And I've taken a lot of lessons. Very unique lesson. It was, and it was a very long lesson, too. Yeah. Bob's a very deep, conceptual thinker and a real sort of creative genius. He's not as well known in the industry as a lot of the other legends out there, but he should be. And I think he's best known really for two things, which is what I'm most familiar with. And that was he played on Pat Metheny's first album, Bright Size Life, along yep. with Jaco Pastorius, which is a, a brilliant recording. And he also wrote a book called Drum Wisdom, which I believe now is actually out of print. There are digital copies on Drummer now, I think. And it was uh, published, I think, through Modern Drummer. And it's more of a conceptual book than an exercise book. Mm -hmm. Now, you had talked about it was probably one of the most unique lessons or the unique, mostly unique lesson that you had had up to that point. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Okay, first, it was about I think we had tea. And I don't know, maybe we talked for an hour. I don't even remember exactly. 
at some point he said, well, you want to go to the drum room? And I, I was, I was kind of scared. I didn't know anything about him, but I was just, mm-hmm. like, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and so we'd go to his drum room and maybe you've seen photos of his setup. It's a very unique drum set, what he plays now. And so, you know, I don't remember the details. This was around, I think this was about 17 years ago, which I can't believe it's that long ago now, but, uh, he, he talked a lot and he played a good bit. And I played a very little bit. At some point, he asked me to play and played for a very short time. At some point, we played together a little bit. I think he was playing upright bass. But it was a lot of listening. It was a lot of listening to him. And at some point, he had he had my arms, kind of grabbing my arms, kind of, I think, trying to show me or translate a movement, like kind of drumming my arms or moving them, um, which I was tense. And I don't feel like I was really that receptive to what he was trying to teach there in this lesson was um many hours maybe up to five hours ended with me picking a record he asked me to pick a record and to watch him contour or dance this so his his um his philosophy he calls living music which is also the working title for the indiegogo campaign living music a film about rock alam bob moses so and so it's about singing and dancing the music basically like I, I just had a long conversation with him a few days ago and he was saying this he, he believes and 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 i and I, I agree with him though i think there's well anyway he believes that <laughs> the drummers are most drummers are going about it wrong that they're um they're they're approaching the technique first mm-hmm. really the singing should come first how you know a great drummer is a great singer or a great singer is a great drummer or a great phraser you know, their phrasing. So, you know, so basically he says he can usually tell about a musician kind of their level by how they sing. There's just things he's, he's told me that have taken years to sink in. And just the biggest thing he's, he's really helped me with, and it's just really through example, is being yourself, like being like comfortable with yourself and, and, and being true to yourself. I mean, he, that's, I would say that's, that is a big part of his genius is that. And also he's, he's a, a pure artist. And that's partly also what the film will be about is that he, he's somebody who has never compromised his artistic vision. You know, he's never pursued commercial success. It's all it's spiritual for him. And so, you know, his, his, a lot of his peers are in a different place than he is with, you know, how well they're known and probably the house they live in and all that, but he's, he, he's happy and he's, um, you know, he, he's been true to himself to what, what's important to him. And I think that's where a lot of the joy in being an artist comes from, because it's really easy to get caught up into a curriculum based artist lifestyle where you're kind of fitting into the categories and the roles that are set aside for you. There are different paths that you can follow, but it's it's really easy to kind of fall into those paths. And one of the biggest challenges I know for myself as a musician is letting go of the things that I feel like I'm supposed to do and embracing the things that I feel. You should never apologize for the things that speak to you. You should embrace the things that speak to you. And you should be open to a whole bunch of things. And some things may not connect with you, but things that other people think you shouldn't be following, if that's what speaks to you, you need to embrace that. And that's kind of what makes you unique. And I think that's one of the things about Rock Alam, Bob Moses, as you said, is um, very unique, is that he's embraced himself and what he finds joy in, because music should be joyful. It should be a spiritual experience. 
is I remember attending a Wayne Shorter concert um, a few years back when he was playing in Toronto and Brian Blade was playing drums with them. And it was so intense because of the stuff that they were doing that at one point, Brian actually started to tr- let out these tribal screams and he's almost kind of like standing up on the, on the drums and he's pounding the drums as if it's like, you know, he's angry at them. And then so suddenly then the dynamics just dropped back down and then it just became so sensitive and so beautiful. And it was about responding to those moments, but not feeling confined to the boxes that we're trying to limit ourselves in. And mm. that's not an easy thing for us to let go. Some people are more comfortable at that than others, but some of us tend to be kind of restrained in these little boxes, but we're always Mm -hmm. trying to find that passion and that form of expression. And I think as we get older, the, the need to fit in becomes less important and the need to express and find joy in our lives becomes a little bit more of a focus. So that's why I'm particularly fascinated about this whole experience with Rockland Bob Moses and this film that you're doing. So can you talk a little bit about the film project and what your intention is and what you hope to achieve? Sure. So, well, what I, what my intention is and what I hope to achieve is to create a film that's not just for drummers or for musicians. I, I would like drummers and musicians to like it and to enjoy it, but I would like there to be a personal story, which right now the idea is that this story of how I didn't know him and our personal story could be a part of it, but really just as a gateway to tell about this fascinating life, his his life, his, his fascinating life. The goal is to, is to kind of have that be, to kind of show, you know, he was, he grew up with people who we've just only read about, who we've only, you know, we've never seen live, who weren't alive when, you know, some of them weren't alive you know, when, when we were alive, um, you know, he, he was jamming with Charles Mingus when he was 13, like every weekend for like a year at a club, he introduced Eric Dalton, is it Eric Dalton? No, not Eric Dalton. He introduced Hassan Roland Kirk to Charles Mingus. He lived in a building with Max Roach and Elvin Jones. So he was rubbing shoulders and in people, he said the people in the elevators, it was just, you know, incredible. So he has that connection to, to history, to, to the music. And then, you know, he was, you know, there's a video. Have you seen this video of him? He was like 19 playing with this um, virtuoso Brazilian guitarist. This, what comes to mind to me when I see this video, I'll try to find it and send it to you. It's on his Facebook page, like prodigy, like, like Tony Williams sort of prodigy. And, you know, he was a little bit, old. he was playing with Gary Burton when Pat Metheny joined. And Pat Metheny was the young, like the young, he was a kid with Bright Size Life when they were playing together. And then he was a little bit older than Jocko and Pat Metheny. So he was a little bit, little bit the elder, though it may have only been a few years, you know, at that point when they're that young, that a few years is a lot. So anyway, so, so telling that story, but then how he kind of, he took this different path where it became, you know, well, he heard, he heard Coltrane for the first time when he was 13. And that was the beginning of this path of the spiritual, not the, not the, you know, material. Yeah. So anyway, so he, um, his life, he at some point had some hardship, which I don't know a lot about, which we'll probably learn more about a really, really down and out period of his life where he found, um, this person who he already knew, this guitarist to CG, who used to play with Pharaoh Sanders, um, to CG Munoz, to CG sat with him. He was in pain and to CG sat with him, I think for, maybe days i don't know exactly i need to clarify that but um i don't know if he would describe him that like this but sort of became his guru so part of the film project is 
we're going to go to Tsijis and talk with Tsijis, and I'm sure they will probably be reporting then, and we'll you know document that. We're going to New Orleans. Things can change as you're filming, but I kind of see this as the um, probably you know could be the culmination of the film and kind of a coming home in a funny sort of way. Even though he's from New York, um, you know, New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz, and we're doing a recording session with Johnny Vadakovich, who you know I'm sure most drum set players know. I mean, quintessential New Orleans drummer, played absolutely with the air and you know all kinds of people, but um, and, and just such a such an interesting guy as well. Um, so also getting their interactions, Bill Summers, I had interviewed Bill Summers this summer <laughs> in June and, um, Bill Summers was the percussionist in the headhunters with Herbie Hancock, correct? Correct. Yeah. And has played with so many people. I mean, it's, it's kind of mind blowing to see his resume. Um, I asked him to do it and he's involved and, and, and rock Alam was, you know, love the idea. So the, and there's a new Orleans new Orleans guitarist named Chris Alford. There's a horn player from uh, Memphis who Rock On plays with pretty regularly named Art Edmiston. Um, there's another saxophone player from who lives in Mississippi, played with Paul Motion, um, named Michael Atkins. Also, um, Jeff Coffin, who's a saxophone player here in Nashville. He's a part of the project. He um, he plays with the Dave Matthews Band. He's played with Bale Fleck and the Flecktones um, and does lots of, he's always doing cool projects. And there's a trumpet player that may be coming from St. Louis. Um, we're also trying to get Cyril Neville. So yeah, we grabbed this big, big recording two days of recording we got this big beautiful house in new orleans so we're going to film a lot of you know interviews and some impromptu you know just some you know just being and we're going to film the trip down a friend of mine from new orleans is going to fly to nashville and then film the trip we're going to pick up rock alarm in a van in memphis we're going to drive to memphis pick them up so you know have a little bit of a road trip to it we're also going to go to new york and film different locations that were significant and have rock alarm talk about that we're going to interview people. Pat Metheny's agreed to do an interview, which I'm thrilled about. And he's also playing in Memphis. I'm hoping to facilitate a reunification. Uh, um, and I would love to film that. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot that's up in the air. And a lot of it will take shape as it happens, as, you know, as we see what we have, what's usable, you know, what, what footage do we have? But it's really exciting, really inspiring. And Rock Alam is super, super excited. And his create, like, he seems on fire creatively. And he, although he has stage four cancer, he's playing beautifully and he still has energy. And so we felt some urgency to do this, you know, now, like not, not wait. Um, and so we've been doing the crowdfunding thing. We're way, we're pretty far from our goal, but I, I believe we'll get to the goal. And, uh, you know, so this is new. I've never made a film like this before, but I'm inspired. You know, I have I was an art major in college and I've been doing some production video things for a number of years now. And um, it feels actually like a culmination of my skill set of the, the the visual background that I have with the musical and film seems like a great you know marriage of those things. Well, and so this project, in addition to being a documentary film, is also like a recording project as well. So there's almost there's two mm -hmm. different aspects to it, yeah. That, uh, that you're hoping to kind of tie together. So I was on the the crowdfunding page for this, and I was just reading a little bit more about this particular project. I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and I think this is an incredibly valuable and essential work. So I really want to do my part to kind of help get the word out. I appreciate that. There are so many legends who have so much to offer and inspire us, and we've lost many of them. And some mm -hmm. of them we still have, 
But if we don't share their stories now, then some of the most important and most inspiring stories, we will never actually have access. Yeah. When, when, how often do you have access to a living legend and can you ask them questions? You know, that's the thing. One of the things that I think is pretty cool about your situation is that you've had this sort of friendship and this mentorship with Rock along Bob Moses for, you said, going on almost 17 years now. And so in addition to the the first lesson that you had sort of talked about and how strange of an experience that was because it was so unique, what are some of the other things that you've gotten from that friendship that you've carried with you today that have sort of changed your approach to either life or being a musician? Yeah, um, let's see. So one, one thing is, I think it's helped me and I don't know how exactly, but kind of get away from the, I mean, not that I'd never do it, but, but comparison, that trap, the comparison trap. Um, and also, yeah, the, the student trap of, you know, we, we can all be life students and, but, but the, the, it can, we can get kind of stuck in student mode and not synthesize and create our own thing. So I think, I don't know how he's helped me with that. Just being around him. You know, I mean, there's concepts, you know, his resolution points, which, you know, I, I try to sing those. I, I get reminded when I see him and I'll start singing them again. You know, I'll, I'll, for someone like that, I feel like it's just the more you're around them. You know, I mean, we talk a lot, but but also I've, I've seen him play a decent bit that you just kind of you get a vibe. You take a vibe and you kind of start to internalize. But also, you know, seeing the movement like he was just telling me um, he made a video, a friend of his video took a video of him playing with the like they were like boom whackers and i remember him telling me he sent me this video he said at some point he, he was playing match he went to the traditional grip and um he said his movements he could see edgar bateman his favorite drummer of all time and he could see that he had synthesized some of these movements the way he was moving so i feel like there's certain things i mean you can practice but just being around it, you, you, you maybe synthesize it or take it in differently. So I can't even really put into words some of the things I've learned from him, but I just know that he's helped me in so many ways. That's what's really, I think, special about it for me is that it's like, I don't even know how he did it exactly. <laughs> like, and I don't even know exactly what it is, but, but I know I feel it. I know for me, some of the longest and some of the greatest lessons that I ever had involved no playing. They just involved talking about, mm. you know, life concepts or different concepts or other people's sort of situations. And I think those are often essential because one of the things that we sort of struggle with is just kind of getting out of our own head and mm -hmm. really just opening ourselves up to exploration and these different experiences. I remember spending three hours in Dom Famliero's teaching studio in Long Island a, a few mm. years back. I was there for two days. I spent two hours one day and I think we played for about 20 minutes and we talked for the rest of the time. And the mm. next day I said, oh, I'm determined that I'm actually going to play for most of my lesson. And I think we talked for three hours straight. And it was mm. still one of the greatest and most inspiring lessons that I ever had of my career because one of the things that it really helped me with is just to kind of build the confidence in myself, help learn that I have value as a musician and as a player and that I need to kind of let go of some of the mindset things that are sort of 
keeping me in the past and just embrace sort of this enthusiasm and exploration and become part of a community. And I think for me, through studying with a lot of the people that I've been fortunate to connect with, and then even through these podcasts and with you, is that it, building the community builds the enthusiasm and it opens up the world to new experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've been a drummer now for 41 years and I often say that despite the fact that I have a college background and I've been doing this on and off professionally for at least the last 30 plus years, I really didn't learn how to be a student and to learn properly until the last 10 years, because at that point you started to kind of get out of your own head and take a different approach and perspective on this. And so it's being a lifelong student and always being open to learning new things, I think, is essential for keeping us inspired and keeping us going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel similarly that, that it took me a really long time to learn how to learn or learn how to practice and, and yeah, make the most of the time. And it, become, it can become fragmented when you're, when you're first starting, you're practicing for a long time. I think I need to practice for this long time. But, but yeah, it's not really, you're not really working necessarily on what you need to be working. I was not. You know, I went to PASIC for the first time in uh, last year. And one thing I was really excited about is I was able to take three different concepts from three different clinics and all practice them all at the same time. Like I was able to, one was from Benny Greb, is it Greb or Greb? I'm not sure. Greb, Benny Greb. Greb. Yeah. Uh, it was was pra- practicing with a click that, that has a gap, you know, yep. that, that, so that. And then yeah, there was uh, I think it was uh, the guy from Death Cab for Cutie. What's his name? Um, it was it was about um, singing each part, mm-hmm. um, which it was really cool for internalizing. And then there was um, oh shoot, there's a drum jazz drummer, young guy who had anyway. He had another cool concept. It was a little bit like stick, uh, a little bit like um, syncopation stuff, but a little different twist on it. But yeah, so it was just cool to take those, all those concepts and be able to practice them all at once. Um, so that, I mean, I feel like that's the difference between, you know, being when I was 13 and being 49. I find focus practice and finding living a, a balanced life just makes everything much more joyful. There's still ups and there's still downs, but that's all part of the journey. I'm particularly excited, as I said earlier, really about what you're doing with this project. And I um, I hope that you are able to get all the support and everything that you need. So what's the timeline that currently kind of hoping to do this in? Well, we're, we are, we are going to be in new Orleans, September 25th through October 1st. And I think the, I think the, the crowdfunding campaign, the Indiegogo campaign ends, I think while we're there, it might end like the, that Saturday. So we have, we have 38 days left in the campaign, um, living music, a film about rock along Bob Moses, Indiegogo. You know, so we, we've kind of moved into a different phase. I have a team of people who are working on this with me. I have um, a dear friend, Megan Richardson, who um, she's also a drummer here in Nashville and a songwriter, um, but she also has editing skills, uh, you know, copy, written editing. And so she's helping with this project. And then another friend of mine, David Martin, who's in Nashville, North Carolina, he has some project management skills. He's a musician. We were in my college band together. He plays bass. He and so we're now looking at, you know, publications, um, you know, jazz magazines, music magazines, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at every, every avenue, you know, grants, everything, but, 
but we're just, you know, every every person that contributes, you know, if 2,000 people contribute $25, we we make our goal. You know, even though that may sound like a lot of people, it's like it gets it gets enough out, out to enough people who believe in it, we can make our goal. I think this is an important story, you know, the, the, the film about Rock Alam. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's happening. You know, we'll, we'll do it however we need to do it. But but it'd be nice to have, you know, be able to have some of the resources that would help us make it. Well, when I do put this episode out, I will include both a link to you as well, because I know you have your own website. And I also will include the link the crowdsource sort of fundraiser for this one as well too. And I will help to get the word out. If people want to connect with you, because I know that you're also a respected educator and you are involved in a lot of cool different um, elements in uh, Nashville, what's the best way to connect and get a hold of you? Uh, info at soundandrhythm.com. When you look back at the different experiences that you have had sort of throughout your journey, what are some of the most profound lessons that you would have as a takeaway? Oh, wow. That's a profound question. Uh, so, so, so like on my journey, okay, that's a really hard one. So on my journey as a musician or as a drummer. Or biggest challenges that you have overcome. I think, I think well, I was just thinking about this today. I think music is an equalizer. I think music, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Really, we're, we're all, you know, we're all on the same playing field, but, but also, you know, everyone is unique and has their own gifts. So I think accepting, you know, accepting, learning to accept my strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's one way that Rock Alam Bob Moses has helped me that, you know, and, and also our weaknesses are partly what make us who we are and, and give us value and our uniqueness. Absolutely. Now, as an educator, what are some of the biggest lessons you try and instill into your students conceptually? I would say like being able to teach yourself, you know, learning the concepts so that you're able to, to be able to teach yourself, but also um, find like find the sources. You, you, you know, you really like Dave Grohl, who were his influences? You know, you probably have heard this a lot, but like like, so I've done this with students where we'll, okay, let's check out who, what, does Dave Grohl have an interview where he talks about drummers? Oh, you know, he like, like John Bonham or whatever. You know, I, I think that, I don't even know that's right, but it probably is. But, you know, so then let's listen to John Bonham. Oh, there's this drummer you've never heard of. Oh, let's check them out. So, you know, kind of going down a rabbit hole of, you know, all these, you know, influences um, because that that's what made, you know, whatever drummer we like, it was formative for them. So we can learn. And also possibly find someone else we really love, you know. Absolutely. And remaining true to your own voice, as I sort of said earlier, one of the biggest things that I used to find is that sometimes there's always things that you love and, and music that speaks to you. But sometimes you're too afraid to kind of share that because you fall into these little boxes of expectations where you think, well, I shouldn't like this because these people say that this isn't good. That's not important. What's important is that you really, you find the things that speak to you, you embrace the things that just speak to you and hopefully mm -hmm. through the experience of putting all of these things together, you find joy and really celebrate being your true self. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think if you're your true self, you're going to find people that resonate with that. You're, you know, your community, like you were saying. Yeah. And, yeah. and people can tell if you're being genuine or not. So, yeah. be ge so just 
you know, find joy in your life, be genuine and be nice too. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Always be kind. Yeah. Clifford, it's an absolute pleasure to connect with you. Likewise. I'm really excited about this project. I will do my part to help to get the word out as well. I wish you all the best. I want to keep in touch with you throughout this and kind of find out how things are going. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I know that this is going to be an incredible project. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you and you had some great questions. I really appreciate you taking the time and helping. Oh, my pleasure. We will uh, we'll work together as a community. We'll make this happen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.